Daniel Blackman. I'm Eric Cohn. And welcome back to Blue Topsy. We have been so inundated and busy and New Year and fun things. Super Bowl in Atlanta. Yeah, you're correct. Super Bowl and the streets closed in Atlanta. Streets closed. 169 arrests for human trafficking, man. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, pretty crazy, man. Uh, definitely, I think outside of uh, the Super Bowl, which I didn't uh, spend a lot of time looking at, but you know, I think it was really important to know that the city uh, was able to do some really good things. I think Atlanta looked good on TV. I think the city uh, was very impressionable. Uh, but I definitely was concerned a little bit about some of the issues that were happening on the ground. Folks in Atlanta were very familiar with not just the human trafficking aspect, but also some of the displacement of homelessness, which has uh, gravely become an issue in Atlanta. Uh, and I think the issue of, of economic inequality uh, was on display, seeing the investment that came to the city. So I would hope that one of the lessons we learned from this major event that we have is to make sure that our people are a priority. I'd love to see uh, some type of post-Super Bowl analysis of uh, what the city of Atlanta was able to do and how it's going to impact our region. Right. I mean, you see they do analysis of the impact of any of these type of events. And you'll have a chamber of commerce that'll say, hey, this this is netting you know, $150 million in you know, positive economic impact and stuff. But then they talk about there's like displacement. So, for example... People that were going to come to Atlanta anyways, or maybe have their own, you know, seminar or some type of convention, and they don't because this is going on. That's right. So it doesn't net out like what they claim. And at the end of the day, you sit there and go, no matter what, right down the street from all these stadiums, you have, you know, massive poverty in, in, in neighborhoods that have been neglected forever. And they're sitting there with barely running water. And this is going on down the street. And it's like, what do you do about it? Well, not only that, but I think, you know, one of the biggest things we need to be able to understand from an economic impact standpoint, I want to get into a little bit of national politics, is, you know, it, how, how do we, and I'm asking you this, and I want our audience to think about it, how do we find that balance between corporate impact and, you know, when you look at the Democratic Party, um, Democratic National Committee, Democratic Party of Georgia, uh, when you look at for instance, over the years, you know, mm -hmm. we, we saw the movie industry take a huge stand when it came to religious freedoms bills. Right. We uh, saw some threats of um, that same thing happening for the Super Bowl when we saw some of the things that the legislature right. was considering. And then we also saw some of the impact that could potentially have happened from the government shutdown, right? right? So what, Eric, do you see as a way we can kind of move forward in addressing these issues and preventing them from happening again. What are the safeguards we put in place? Because, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, man. I, I think that Atlanta was ripe for the perfect storm. Uh, I, I know 100 MARTA bus drivers uh, right. called out. Right. Uh, you know, could you imagine if TSA, uh, if MARTA, and if other essential services shut down? I mean, right. not only would that be a security risk, but it would put a lot of good uh, patrons and visitors to our city um, in harm's way. So I remember we were living in Florida back when the last Super Bowl happened. What was that? 2000? That's right. And it was a disaster because what, there was what, two ice storms in a week? Yeah. I remember being on the outside looking at it going like, God, they can't get their act together up there. But let me go backwards because this is where I, where I actually want to start with this. Take the Super Bowl as a whole. I think a lot of people are starting to find kind of the corporatization of everything to be so, so off-putting. It's like the Super Bowl is this giant event that's basically put on for the ultra-wealthy. 
and you see a city that's that's you know bending over backwards for an entity like the NFL and these these private companies. Yeah, you know it it, it leaves a bad taste in the mouth. Now you're right about everything that was going on. We are very lucky that the uh, that the unneeded government shutdown was over. Because what would have happened? My mom and and our little one they were went through the airport. And she said, you know, it was mobbed because of, you know, who are they asking me, like 150,000 people coming or leaving on this Monday, this past Monday, yeah. and a million people coming into Atlanta. Although, supposedly, the million people coming into Atlanta for Atlanta and, you know, Super Bowl activities, 85% of those people were actually Georgia residents, but still, 15% of a million people, pretty darn good. Well, here's how it impacted me. You know, I went to Miami yep. uh, the week before Super Bowl, well, actually, the week of Super Bowl, and... You know, I came back the Thursday before Super Bowl Sunday, mm-hmm. and uh, I drove. Uh, I heard there were four and five hour waits at yeah. Hartsfield Jackson Airport, and uh, to be quite frank with you, I, I spent five of those hours uh, on a seven and a half, eight hour trip down in Florida, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I think I, I made the right decision. But to move forward, though, to to get beyond that, Super Bowl's over. Probably go down as one of the most least interesting games in NFL history. Uh, Virginia. Governor comes out with, uh, he still to this day hasn't said if it was blackface or the Klan outfit, but then he tried to draw back on it. Then we see the sexual harassment accusation uh, in, uh, uh, from the lieutenant governor's side. And then we see that the, the attorney general, all three of whom are Democrats, yep. um, comes out and says, hey, you know, I, I wore blackface as well. I mean, what the hell is going on in Virginia, man? You know... It's almost like the world's become the onion, you know, where they just make up crazy, you know, story. Okay. So the blackface. You sit there and go with with the governor. You know, he he sat there and said, I want to show you how I can moonwalk, you know, with his you know, like his press conference and his wife's just like, yeah, no, I, no, call, no. I call BS. <laughs> it's like, no, nah, that dude's not moonwalking. So the one I'm really zeroing in on is Lieutenant Governor, because this, to me, is a Kavanaugh situation all over again in a lot of ways. And it's interesting to see that folks on our side that were calling for Kavanaugh's head, they're now sitting here going, oh, well, wait a minute, we need a full investigation. But I'll say this, just like a lot of folks believe that Al Franken was wrong because he didn't have a full investigation about the claims about him, maybe we're kind of coming around full circle and going like, maybe there's some type of Middle ground, where it's like, okay, we need to vet things out. Washington Post said that they had an investigation uh, into the lieutenant governor, and things didn't pan out, except more or less it sounded like it was like he said, she said, and then that's for everybody else to determine. So here's what I would say. Yeah. I think the timing of the lieutenant governor's accusation is very scratchy and skeptical. Yes. I don't ever think that uh, an accusation of sexual harassment or rape or any type of violence against men, women, or children mm-hmm. uh, should be taken lightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do question some of the timing, but I think as Democrats or as Americans in general, uh, we should hold everyone to the same standard. And I think that while the timing is off, there should be time for a thorough investigation to understand what is going on uh, and to really address the issue because, you know, here's the Democratic doomsday scenario. What happens if the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the attorney general are forced to resign? There's a, there's a Republican speaker, right? That's a Republican That's speaker. Right. So that means immediately 
we would see a, a, an, uh, a Republican governor with yep. appointing powers mm -hmm. uh, that could could shake up the whole Virginia legislature. So there's a, a, a bit of a funk in Virginia <laughs> right now, and uh, I'm not going to get too far into that that uh, that gumbo over there. So we're going <laughs> to focus in on what's local. We've had a, a very interesting, exciting, and busy week in the state of Georgia. Mr. Clearly, we, we have to stop for a second. Because... Oh. Because you can't just go over all that craziness and just not be stunned by the fact that we're talking about blackface. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm stunned by it, but, you know, my response and, and how I've gone over it is, is as a black man, um, this stuff is becoming common practice. I mean, you know, there has to be time to speak about it. You know, in January, we saw two news directors um, called Martin Luther King yep. or, or Say Coon yep. in the same sentence as King. Yep. For the life of me, I don't understand how you can confuse Coon with King. No, you can't. I've never seen a, a black kid wear a white face. Um, no. I've never, uh, are there racist black people? You're damn right. You know, there's racist people in every right. single demographic. The challenge I have is that blackface um, has been something that historically has been to mock black people. Mm -hmm. um, when, when blackface was first um, established in minstrel shows and to really uh, emulate the, the perception of fear of black folks, it was prior to the Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, then you get this post-Civil War era where we fall into the Jim Crow era and folks, black folks were forced to darken their skin by wearing blackface. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this idea that it's happened has translated now into corporate America where we see companies like Gucci who has put out a sweater that has nothing to do with a turtleneck or a sweater, and then they, they plead ignorance. So the reason why I brushed over it is because, to be quite frank with you, as a black man in America and as someone that knows firsthand what it means to have a black family, when you look at, you know, Trayvon Martin would have been 24 years old a couple of days ago, uh, we have become numb to police shootings in black America. It doesn't mean that it's right, but when you look at Sterling Brown, when you look at, um, you know, Tamir Rice, when you look at Sandra Bland, when you look at uh, 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 Mike Brown, look what happened in Ferguson, look at what happened in Baltimore with Freddie Gray. I mean, we're at a point as black people in America where we're, we're very much um, hurt and angry, but to the point that, you know, you look at the shooting in Alabama, this you know, African-American former soldier shot in the back, police cleared of all charges. And it's very difficult as... Uh, of a black person in America. Now, Laquan McDonald, the shooter, it was a start, but in Chicago, the mm -hmm. shooter of Laquan McDonald, uh, who was not a threat, obviously the young man had some mental issues going on. He was uh, murdered in cold blood. And that police officer received six and a half to seven years in prison. And that is a start, but progress, um, I once heard it said that, that progress, uh, if you stick a knife in me nine inches and you pull it out six, that's not progress. If you pull the, the knife completely out, that's not progress. Progress is when you pull the knife out, you clean the wound, bandage the wound, and allow the wound to heal. And uh, black folks have not had a chance to heal, and we're celebrating Black History Month this, this month. And, you know, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's tough, man. It's tough because when my kids, my, my son saw it the other day, yeah. and uh, he, I saw him on his computer, and he was pulling up blackface. And he asked me, very candidly, Eric, he just said, today, why are they still doing this? Right. right? So as a black parent, when mm -hmm. I want to talk to my kid about politics and arithmetic and, and engineering and 
robotics and all that. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to my kid about blackface. Right. See, I, I look at it this way. It's like you're sitting here saying, like, you grow numb to it at, at a certain point. Because you're like, this this stuff keeps going on. And it's like, we just have to keep going on. Yeah. And so I don't like the term. In a way, you got to say, you know, people say allies. It's like, to me, when this stuff goes on, it's incumbent upon white people to step up and say, uh-uh. This is just nonsense. And you have to just harp in all these other communities on this, say, this is just wrong and so antiquated. By the way, like some people that don't know the backstory, like you're saying, it's like we had major Hollywood films like in the 1920s and 30s where it was like, oh, so-and-so, like Jolson, he's in blackface. These are huge films. These are things that have been going on forever. But the, but the ignorance, like that, that we're talking about the 1980s. Yeah. We're not talking about like a 1950s time machine. We're talking about the 1980s, like when we were kids. Yeah, the thing that bothered me about the governor's response was when he said that he was 25. You know, when I see black kids making mistakes at 13 and 14 and getting 10-year mandatory right. minimum sentences, no one says, well, the black kid was 13. Right. He, you know, he, he wasn't mature enough. No, mm-hmm. they say... No, you, you do the crime, you commit you, right. do, you do the crime, you do the time, right? Mm-hmm. And this idea that a very uh, well-educated, informed, articulate gentleman that would, would be a decorated army soldier and, and would go on to become a governor at 25 years old mm-hmm. couldn't make mistakes. I mean, hell, you know, we saw in, in Barack Obama's uh, memoir that he tried cocaine. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think anyone should be held victim to the errors of their past or of their youth. But when it comes to things like anti-Semitism, when it comes to uh, race, bigotry, hatred, uh, you know, at some point, you don't get a pass. Right. You know, you, we just cannot tolerate that kind of behavior, whether it's right. someone being insensitive to the Holocaust or to the, to, the, to the Jewish community, or it's to someone devaluing black lives, or it's to someone saying that because a woman dresses a certain way, she has, you know, invited right. a certain behavior or because she was, you know, hanging around a certain group of people, you know, the rape or sexual assault is, 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 is well, boys would be boys and, and that just happened. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, in a place where I'm, I'm frustrated as a father and a husband. I'll be 40 this year and it's harder for me to have conversations that I thought we should have already acknowledged. And uh, so to your point, 1984 wasn't a long time. Our home county, Forsyth County, Georgia, 1987, we had the Brotherhood mm-hmm. March. We had Oprah Winfrey put our county very much on display. And we, 34 or 33 years later, um, are still uh, taking on the consequences and the repercussions of what the world saw, uh, whether folks were from here or not. So I think we need to really understand that uh, time isn't the only thing that heals it. Is good folks, white, black, every culture, every race mm-hmm. coming together when we see an atrocity or we see oppression or we see any form mm-hmm. of hatred or bigotry or just ignorance. If we don't all collectively take a stand, uh, e pluribus union, right? Mm-hmm. Out of many one. We've got to do something about it. All right. So let, let's let's go this a different way. You're saying an investigation, whatever. As a political, political strategist, what would you say the outcome should be for those guys? Well, I mean, I think it's a little complicated. I think that, one, I think the governor came out and he owned it in the beginning, and I think there should have been a conversation. There shouldn't have been a rush to judgment. 
I think that too often, um, and I heard Jay-Z say this, you know, too often we're reactionary. Like I remember when the owner of the Clippers came out and he was caught on tape making those racist statements. And the first thing that was done was a call for him to sell off the team and to, you know, get out of there, right? The problem with America is that Trump is a symptom of the problem, right? right. So the, the issues that have allowed Trump to be who he is and the enabling of the individuals that follow him is a result of pe- people feeling they can't express themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Even if it's out of ignorance. Right. So if, from a PR standpoint, I think the governor did the right thing in coming out immediately. Mm-hmm. I think the next thing he should have done was immediately call some type of council that he, whether it was the NAACP right. in Virginia or organizations, he should have sat, mm-hmm. sat there and took the punches. He should have took the blows. He should have had a series of conversations. And then he should have had his cabinet, his staff, the national leadership, and the, and the, and the black community, and any community that was um, that was impacted. And they should have sat down, and there should have been a conversation on how we move forward. But what we did was we literally took the same thing, now looking at hypocrites, because when the Trump people do it, when we saw uh, Charlottesville and all these areas, we're so quick on trying to just just address it by doing the most, uh, you know, uh, emotional pivot, right? Mm-hmm. That we missed the opportunity to really address the issue. Here's the name, George Wallace. Yeah. Best known segregationalist basically ever in this country. Yep. A lot of people don't realize towards the end of his life what happened. Yep. People don't understand that, you know, he basically atoned for his sins. He did. And when he ran again... He got the majority of the black voters to vote for him because he he went to the community and was, you know, just felt shame for what he had done, and rightly so. And, and he went there to make up for what he did. So the lesson there is that that's exactly the roadmap that, that the governor should be going down, like you're saying. It's, it, we're not, when all we're doing is accusing people and then want this kind of this instant gratification of like whether... They should quit. They should be fired. They should resign. You know, whatever the deal is, you're not getting at the root of the problem. All you're trying to do is just move on to the next. We're not we're not educating people. We're not educating people. And race has been more weaponized than ever in my lifetime. You know, we see stories about the Jim Crow era, about what Dr. King went through, about, you know, things that happened in the segregated South with Jim Crow, with sundown towns. And, you know, we see the impact that Dr. King had because he was able to be a conversation starter and have her. Um, he believed in the beloved community. He believed that we would either coexist or co-annihilate, right? Either we were going to get along or it was going to get so bad that we were the destruction of each other. And I think the one thing that we have not done a good job of, whether it's the Me Too movement, like for instance, um, and respectfully, but to the Me Too movement, I, I wish there was more opportunity for there to be a conversation with men and boys rather right. than make people feel guilty because of the ignorance that has been perpetuated right. in our society. Now, I'm the father of three sons. From the day my children were able to comprehend the differences in them being a, a boy and another person being a girl, or they being able to understand their own bodies and be respectful, I immediately said to my children, Here's how you respect your space, and here's mm-hmm. how you respect other people's space. Here's what's what you what should be private and personal to you, mm-hmm. and you need to take that same uh, approach to other people's privacy the same way that you want them to teach them. It's the golden rule, right? That's do right. unto others as you have them doing to yourselves. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna be honest, man. I mean, we are 
missing a tremendous opportunity in history to address nationalism, hatred, misogyny, anti-Semitism. There's so many issues that we are we have failed to address because we have taken the more radical and extreme approach, which is once we see it, we right. just throw it over the cliff. And I think in, in order for us to have an impact across generational lines, let's speak to this governor and let's make sure his children, his grandchildren, his nieces, his nephews, and everyone else that comes under his lineage don't make the same right. mistakes as him. That's how we create a better society. So we're in a we're in the gotcha moment. Yeah. That's what everything is. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then move along and we don't deal with anything. Exactly. And we, we put a band-aid over a gunshot wound yep. and ultimately you bleed out. So this leads to something interesting because as I think our audience knows, we like to go after everybody. Yeah. And I think it gets to one of the things that I see as a fundamental flaw right now with democratic or progressive politics. Mm-hmm. And we are now looking at, at a moment where you tick off boxes, is what I liken it to. And, you know, essentially, we've had a great run of women in the past election, which that is way overdue. Yeah. But now what we start to see is, oh, well, I've got 15 candidates that are unbelievably qualified or 15 candidates that maybe they're not all unbelievably qualified. Let's say there's 15 candidates and the two best happen to be, you know, a white guy or whatever it is. And now we're kind of getting into that moment, and we've seen this in local elections, we've seen it in state elections, we've seen it in national elections, yeah. where basically, well, I want this type of person to run. Mm-hmm. I want that to be the candidate. Even though that person may not be the best candidate, well, it's long overdue. And I understand that mentality, but but you start to get in this kind of real dangerous space where it's like, we're not, we're not running people. We're not running people who might be the best. We're running because somebody is something. Yeah, and... I answered this question on my interview with NPR Radio on identity politics, and the reality is identity politics has gone from inclusion to division. Mm-hmm. That's really where we are. Um, for you all that don't know, this term identity politics has been around as long as, as our democracy. Uh, the challenge is, you know, when you look at identity politics, whether that's based on race or gender or just your, your socioeconomic belief, uh, we see that what has increasingly happened is this new space of tribalism, right? Right. And now it's an us versus them mentality. Mm -hmm. So now um, you may have a very qualified white man uh, or a very qualified black man, and you say, well, it's time for a woman. And that is looking beyond the qualifications of the individuals that can do the best job. That does not mean, like you said, that um, sexism doesn't exist. Right. It doesn't mean that equal pay for women is, is crap, in my opinion. Yeah. Women need to be getting paid just as much, mm-hmm. if not more, because they're doing a hell of a job running corporations, running mm-hmm. foundations, and not just being heads of household. Our women are, are very independent, and, and we have, in my opinion, some of the most smartest and innovative women on this planet right here in the United mm-hmm. States. So I fundamentally agree that black women who have help to establish the consistency of victories within the Democratic Party deserve their just due. And black women deserve an opportunity, but not at the expense, in my humble opinion, of uh, not allowing white women or Hispanic women or white men or black men Mm -hmm. to have the same opportunity. Because we fall into this space now where if we have an us against them mentality from an identity politics standpoint, 
We saw that on display in 2016 with Bernie and Hillary. Not from a gender standpoint, but we see the effects of when you have an us versus them mentality, the whole thing crumbles. We had this for folks not in the state. We had that in the gubernatorial race um, in the primary in Georgia where you had Stacey Abrams and Stacey Evans. Yeah. And it was very racially charged. Yep. And Evans had a lot of stuff thrown at her that just wasn't fair. It was just because she was just a white chick. Yeah. It was... It wasn't acceptable. And, I, and, I, and I'm going to be honest with you, man. I mean, you know, I think everybody saw it. Everyone knows. A couple of candidates that I know that I, I won't name for various reasons have told me that they're uncomfortable with wanting to run because they're not black, right? Mm-hmm. And I've had to reassure to them, put your ideas and your platform out there. And the best person will have an opportunity. And we'll, we'll get beyond this. You know, this is this is a challenging point Um this is a an, an, an very adversarial time in our history mm-hmm. that I think we'll get beyond, but we recognize it, right? So it's like, if you recognize symptoms of cancer early, you can you can right. be cancer-free. If we recognize the symptoms of a divisive, non-inclusionary politics early, I believe that we are well able to right the ship and not make the mistake the Titanic did, which was this huge, awesome, amazing, indestructible <laughs> ship. That hit an iceberg and sunk. And the Democratic Party right now, the Republicans gave us a layup in the form of Donald Trump. And for the last three years, we have had to do nothing. He has has (laughs) pushed a Muslim ban. He has infuriated every race of people, including calling people of color black folks from Africa and hating other countries, people that come from shithole countries. Mm -hmm. We have seen him um, over... Uh, sensitize and 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 really do this fair based South border campaign where we right. where we think that now we should be afraid of our brothers and sisters who are seeking asylum and refuge. So he has done everything that he has needed to do to make the path clear for Democrats. And the only thing like there's a scripture in the Bible that that says that um that a house divided shall not stand. And if the Democratic Party is divided then our chances of winning in the 2020 um, become very questionable. You know JaVale McGee, you know, the basketball player? Yeah, yeah. Okay, he was always like on Shaq and the Fool, but he's, he's gotten his stuff together, right? It reminds you of like you'd see him, he's really tall, I don't know, he's seven, whatever, and the dude would come up and he literally could just touch the rim. And you're like, he's going to throw it down, man, and that dunk is going to be something else. And then, boom, he goes for it. Like he's hit the backboard. It's barely hit the rim and the ball's <laughs> bouncing back out to the other team. It's like that's where you feel like if we go down this road, Trump is giving us the clear path, but we could still manage to screw it up. Because at the end of the day, I think we both know Democrats do a good job of screwing a lot of things up when it comes for running for office. Because I don't know, it's I guess it, in a good way, we're a big tent party. We have all these different ideas and stuff. Yep. But at the end of the day, it can lead to chaos if yeah. we don't stay focused. And it, and I, I want to stress this point, and I have a buddy of mine who, who we talk about this all the time. We talk about how we've got to get through to lots of Democrats and progressives. If they don't see that, the behavior that they're, they're the way that they're acting, a lot of times it's actually racist or sexist. It, it's reverse discrimination, and they don't see it. Yeah. We've got to get that you know message hammered home. Well, and the only way you do that is, is by having uncomfortable conversations. Right. It's like, you know, as a follower, I've had to talk to my kids about porn. You know what I'm saying? I mean, is it a conversation I wake up 
on a Saturday morning and say, hey, I'm going to talk to my kids about porn today, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no, it's, 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 it's a really difficult conversation that either I as a father can have or mm-hmm. I cannot have the conversation and it can cause, you know, a lot of confusion and a lot of, you know, unwarranted challenges in, in their own lives. So mm-hmm. I think Democrats, you know, I know that was the most extreme of examples, but Democrats are not talking about things like race and equity, right? Not just when it's con- politically convenient. Democrats, Georgia Democrats, uh, national Democrats, uh, elected officials, you name it, whatever party you're in, you don't talk about racial equity issues or about what you're going to do for black unemployment when it's an election season. You talk about it when it's on nobody's radar. Right. And you look up and you say, black kids getting shot in the street um, because they seem intimidated is just not right. Not when it's a police shooting, but because as a parent, I don't right. want anybody's kid getting shot in the street, mm-hmm. right? At the end of the day, we have got to do a better job of, as Democrats to speak about the issues that we are facing. For instance, if you look at 287G, which is in six states in the United States, the treatment of, of immigrants who are trying to do things the right way, but the ability for uh, law enforcement to legally profile, racially profile mm-hmm. individuals based on a, on a mandate by ICE I don't think that's right, nor should we try to address it. Should, should we neglect issues of communities of color like black women? And, you know, when you, we talked about the gender inequality pay gap, right? right? But when it comes to black and Latino women versus white women, the numbers are even lower. Right. So I think, to your point, man, we've got to do a better job of addressing these issues and taking them head on and having the testicular fortitude that we're supposed to have, the backbone that we should have as a party to address the issues that are affecting the people we're expecting to vote for us. And what we need to do is, I want to almost call them micro-issues. Everybody has a thousand different issues. And that's all well and good. And many of these things, if not all, are very important things. But I think what happens is, in this whole tribalism, everybody has their own tiny little thing. And we can't even get the big item agendas dealt with anymore. We don't get, we can't, we can't agree on anything. Now we have, if you look at, look at it with, the, uh, with our party for 2020, Medicare for All is a litmus test now. That's right. And if you know, if you have some background in the healthcare industry and you've read extensively, uh, one of the things that, that, that I always harp on is the fact that in a Medicare for All system, it's not economically viable in how things are set up. Mike Bloomberg went out there and said, you can't have Medicare for all. It just, it will bankrupt the country. And then the, the tone was, oh, he's a billionaire. Shut up, Bloomberg. You can't say that. You're just one of these rich guys. But then Brown, Sherry Brown from Ohio, you talk about a progressive working class person that's a senator. Brown, he goes, you can't have Medicare for all. He's like, I'd like to have it lower to like 55. The truth of the matter is in our healthcare system, we have the highest administrative costs in the world. More than 25% of all the cost goes to doctors, hospital administrators, and that, and people hear administrators and they think executives, and that's not the case. It's executives all the way down. You can be administer, you can administer something and have nobody under you. So it's not just fat cats at all. And in all the foreign countries that have a universal healthcare system, those countries that are successful, it's because those costs are substantially less. And you sit there and go, all right. Are doctors going to take pay cuts in America? Are, are administrators at hospitals going to take 
pay cuts? No, they're not. So it's like there's there's so much complexity to this stuff, and it just gets to be ridiculous where our folks, back when George W. Bush was president, mm-hmm. they'd go, Bush would go, everything's black and white with Bush. And it's like, it's not black and white. There's a ton of gray in between. And I feel like we have too many folks on our side that are kind of becoming like our own tea party, and it's their way or no way, and they don't care what the hell the facts are. I think that over the next several months, uh, there are going to be some really tough issues we're going to have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you consider the fact that we've already got, uh, you know, Democratic presidential hopefuls uh, into the double digits, right? Uh, you know, we, we sit in the fact that we have, you know, an African American male and, and woman, and the fact that you have a, a gay man running, you have uh, four or five women running. I mean, this is uh, it's shaping out to be an area where I, I don't see how we're not going to be able to talk about uh, Medicare or Medicaid or right. you know um, race and justice or anything. I think every issue under the sun is going to be touched. My fear, and then we'll jump into Georgia politics, <laughs> and you can take us there. Yes. But my fear is, will Democrats be all over the place and? 2019 and 2020 right. and have the dilemma that we've had, like, what the hell do y'all stand for? Right. If we have 60 issues on the table, then it's going to look like we're, we don't have one that we're going to focus on. And if we spend 2019 beating the hell out of each other, uh, you know, it's going to only give ammunition for the other side. So what I would hope to see over the coming months is more of a, you know, a, a, a candidate that has a platform that is inclusive, that is willing to listen more than they want to campaign, right. and that is going to set themselves apart from the other candidates. And right now, I'm, I'm just not impressed with anyone that I have seen put their name out there. I think everyone has strong characteristics and qualities. Right. I think everyone has some areas they need to work on. But if I had to vote today based on uh, who was actually on the ticket, I can't say that I'm, I'm, I'm overzealous and excited about getting yeah. behind an individual. There's no, anybody who's announced, there's nobody who I go, that's the person. Yeah. But I, I honestly would have to sit and think long and hard. There you go. So, well, look, so <laughs> let's, let's go to the State of the Union, man. I mean, the State of the Union, um, Mr. Trump said is good. <laughs> and I, I mean, but beyond focusing on what he said in that aspect, I, I think that I will give it to the president. I think he had some good things to say as it related to infrastructure. I thought that was a good conversation. I thought he said a couple of things that made a lot of sense to me about government working together and putting things in place that would allow us to build the kind of country in Congress that would be able to make decisions and have things happen in our country. Challenge with that is, as hypocritical as he is, with everything he said that was remotely positive, he came back with something negative, such as criticizing our brothers and sisters, um, that are coming through the southern border. He yep. categorized, uh, air, uh, to me, and, and maybe I'm being too sensitive, but every black person he talked about was someone that was being free from incarceration yep. or how you know he was this great white hope to help <laughs> get black unemployment up. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. I mean, it, that, that's how it came off to yep. people of color. And then you look at, in one sentence, he, he wants to talk about working together. In the next sentence, he talks about how you know, he puts criminals and rapists and, and gang members in the same sentence and breath as he's kind of like looping in all Latino brothers yep. and sisters. So, I mean, while I loved what he said about infrastructure and some of the things he talked about unifying and 
He addressed the women and got a standing ovation for the progress yeah. women have made in our country. He turns right back around, stirs the pot, and I just don't get the guy, man. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to at least be happy about the tone. But how could you be happy about the tone when he when he contradicted damn near everything he said? You know, when he reads off that teleprompter, you sit there and go, you know, he, he does it in that kind of. He's got that tone that that he hate. You can tell he hates it. Oh yeah, and it's just like most of the time you're like, that's the first time he's seen those words. You know, it, it's it's a joke. The best thing, the best takeaway was we learned what it was like to be a child of Nancy Pelosi when she gave what I deemed to be the most sarcastic uh, hand clap. In, oh, yeah, that was hilarious. That was great. So, if nothing else, we know when you're in trouble and, and how Nancy claps. And she has been something else. Just absolutely terrific since the Dems have taken the House back over. I mean... So, Stacy gave... The response, the Democratic response. I'm gonna go ahead and throw you in the fire, man. <laughs> wow, you just you, you just wanted me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going all the way in, man. I'm diving in the pool head first. Stacey Abrams gives her response, and um, and it was very, very, very well received around the country, at least from Democrats. And uh, you know, we live in Georgia, man. What do you think? So, from living here and having seen her in person and everything, she gave a compressed um, stump speech. I mean, that, that's what that was. And and what was interesting about it, the narrative was more about her, which I thought was kind of odd, because it's supposed to be the Democratic Party's agenda, you know, against the, the president's, you know, vision. So we didn't hear a lot of rebuttal to uh, what Trump said. There, was, yeah, yeah. there wasn't really a rebuttal, but there are a lot of points that she made that were excellent. And, and we know that from, from what her stump speech has been and things that she said in the state. But uh, I'll be candid, you know. Truthfully, what would you give her? What's your grade? She's. I always find that she's a good speaker. Yeah. I like. I like. Like she has a great voice. She like she she just she gives a great speech. I'd give her like a seven. And nah, I, I see that's that's a cop out. I want A B C D F. Like what? What do you give? If Stacey? if Stacey Abrams' job was to rebut the president and to say, and, and I realized like he's just spoken, and you know you're supposed to come. Yeah. I'd give it a C. Okay. Because you didn't have a rebuttal. It was more or less kind of hear, hear my grievances about things and even sort of an infomercial for voting rights, you know, which, look, what she backs is incredibly important. But truthfully, it, 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 it's like my business. If I went and I had a speech and all of a sudden at the end I said, hey, you know what? Let me advertise my business. I mean, that's how that came off. Yeah, I'm being truthful. I about mean, that. for me, you know? for me, I will say this: Stacy is someone that has repositioned Georgia from a political competitiveness standpoint. Mm-hmm. Stacy has done a phenomenal job in rallying and motivating folks that, quite frankly, the Democratic Party has missed out on. Now, if I were to give her a grade, it would be a C plus or a B minus, and I'm going to tell you why. Okay, right? So. I agree with you because I think the challenge is, that Stacy has is the John Lewis dilemma that most people have. We hear John Lewis and see John Lewis in Georgia so much, and, and, and not everybody, but like if you live in Atlanta, you, you're so familiar with John Lewis that when he says something that comes off as profound to other people, it comes off as very, yeah, I've heard yeah, it a couple right. times from John Lewis. Right. 
I think because you and I were so close, politically active and instrumental in this past election cycle, mm-hmm. we had heard Stacey three, right. four, five, six times. So I was expecting a little bit more of a rebuttal space to her. What I liked about what Stacey talked about was the impact of the government shutdown. Yeah. I liked Stacey talking about the voting rights piece. Um, I agree. I think she 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 intentionally plugged uh, Fear Fight, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that kind of came off a little awkward to me. But I think overall, she gave a response that, in my opinion, the Democratic Party more so wanted to create an infomercial than a rebuttal. And yes. they wanted to set the stage. And that's why I would, you know, I would have to say, you know, I'm leaning more towards a C plus because I think if you if you ask me how well did she present the Democratic case for 2020, I would say that she is right there at that B minus B B average. Right. Because she made the case for the Democratic Party, not just in Georgia, but around the country to say, hey, look at us, the backdrop, even though you can say it was a little weird or whatever, <laughs> but it was very diverse, yes. Yes. right? So she showed what the, what democracy should look like. Right. It was a reflection of our Congress and of our nation. Mm-hmm. She gave a very strong and poignant um, rebuke to the government and to the president about putting people or putting politics ahead of people right. with the shutdown. And then lastly, I think that I can't stress it enough, but voter suppression is an area that we have to continue to address. But again, when it comes to the things the president did not address, I think she could have done a better job of calling him to carpet, calling him to task Mm -hmm. on what he did or did not do. So, you know, Stacey, if you're listening, if you're out there, uh, we're excited to see that Georgia is is, um, center stage. And we would hope that... um, her message evolves and that uh, that that candidates around the state of Georgia continue to be inspired by her, but also continue to be able to stand their own. Because the one fear that I have, like going into this, mm-hmm. I felt Stacy either was going to hit it out of the park or she was going to, you know, miss it. And I think she was right in the middle. Yeah. And so the challenge is for the Democratic Party of Georgia is now not to align yourself a hundred percent with Stacy. I think to the identity politics we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. I think Stacy is an individual that cannot be replicated, right? You you can't like remember that that uh uh what's that that well I, that's probably not the best example. All I will say is yeah. you can't replicate her. You don't want right 10 Stacy's running for office. Let Stacy be the rock star she is and then get other individuals that can you know, mirror some of that excitement and momentum. Because let's be honest, when Carolyn Bordeaux ran for office, she wasn't a rock star, right? She wasn't the most attractive, and I don't mean that by physical, but she wasn't the most attractive candidate that said, hey, you know, like, I really like this lady. But when you heard her speak, you said, you know what? She's the best person for the job. Right, because you're like, you listen to Karen, Carolyn, you're like, by the way, let's let's stop for a second. Carolyn was going to be on her show a couple months ago. That's right. And as folks know, Things get crazy with political campaigns. Carolyn is coming on the show very soon. So, yeah. All right. I just want to throw that out there. No, but like, Carolyn, you talk about somebody that knows policy. You yeah. listen to her. You're like, my goodness. That is the type of person that should be replicated all throughout Congress. I mean, that is a person that knows how it works, who would be so incredibly effective. Effective. So you, you got roped in because you're like, wow, this lady knows it. And that's the difference. And I think... I think that's the, the problem that Democrats run into now. 
we sit there and go, oh, there's a, an Obama-type person, yep. an Abrams-type person, an O'Rourke, like the, 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 the person, that personality. But sometimes we, we're, we're, we're looking for that so-called rock star, and the people who are the policy wonks, the ones who could be the most effective to push forward yeah, our yeah, agenda, yeah. like a Carolyn Bordeaux, they don't get as much attention. We're going to make sure Carolyn Bordeaux gets attention shortly. We're going to make sure everybody does because the bottom line is Democrats are in the position that we are in right now because we did a crappy job of secession planning. We had eight years of Obama. Um, Obama, we had our challenges internally and externally. We Mm -hmm. knew what was against us and we knew what was for us. And he ended out, in my opinion, with one of the strongest presidencies in modern history. Uh, You can argue it. People might might not agree. But the bottom line is, we centered everything around Obama. So yeah. if Obama succeeded, we succeeded. If he failed, we failed hard. And once Obama left, everybody was scrambling around to figure out, well, who's the next Obama? And that's kind of like saying for the last 50 years, rather than focusing on social justice, inclusion, equity, and poverty, we're trying to find the next Dr. King. Right. And there isn't a next Dr. Right. King. Dr. King is what what Abraham Lincoln was. It mm-hmm. was he, he is what... So many others were a once in a generation individual that came along and was right for that moment in history. Barack Obama was right for that moment in history. We didn't need to replicate Obama, but we needed to build a bench. And we didn't build a bench. And I think that was a challenge that we're now facing and we're stuck with. And I would hope that that we don't have the same issue with Stacey because she's going to stay out there. But we've got to make sure that we're bringing people up with her that can be the infrastructure and support that she needs and that the whole entire state of Georgia needs. All right, so we're going to move on to what I call the elephant in the room. What's that? That would be, so as folks know, we have not been on our regular schedule because there has been a lot of stuff going on. That's right. So we're going to touch on something that, that's of interest probably to our audience. If you guys don't already know, Daniel ran for chair of the Democratic Party of Georgia. I did. So let's go back to the beginning of that. And my first question is, was there like this epiphany? Was there this this point where you're like, you know what? I think I'm going to make a go of this. Like, what what was your reasoning? What was your rationale? To be honest with you, uh, let's go back to election night, November. What was it? The 6th or the 7th. Um, I'm sitting down in a room and like everybody else, I'm disappointed watching the numbers come in. And the next day, um, actually the day before, um, the election, the day before election night, that Monday, mm-hmm. I wrote an op-ed called The Day After Tomorrow. And the op-ed specifically focused on win, lose, or draw, what the Democratic Party needs to do going forward. That got a lot of good reviews, and about three weeks after uh, we didn't make strides, now granted, Lindy Miller and John Barrow were able to get to a runoff. That's true. Uh, but after the runoff, after December 4th, I started getting calls from South Georgia, from Middle Georgia, from our friends in you know, in, in, in Lyons County and our friends in, 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 uh, up in um, uh, Lumpkin County and all over the state mm-hmm. and Raven and other areas. And uh, I started getting calls from people that said, Danny, we want a voice the, within the party. We feel right. like we're being left out of the conversation. And I am not, and, and you know this, I'm not a reactionary person. I didn't want right. to jump and say, hey, well, you know what, I'm going to. I'm gonna just go run for the chair of the party. No, he didn't. I, I can I can attest yeah. to that. No. And so for me, the only thing on my radar was public service commission right. consideration for 2020. Mm-hmm. And uh, between the runoff on December 4th and December 15th, 
um, we, unfortunately, my wife's grandmother got sick. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a lot of time to go back and forth to Virginia. She actually uh, lost, uh, uh, passed away a couple of days before Christmas. And I had a lot of time to soul search and to think and a lot of quiet time to prioritize. And to answer your question, um, after traveling to Virginia and coming back and getting numerous requests to put people's voice and platform out there, uh, I decided to get out there and run. You you were a big support in that process and decision, you and your wife Jennifer and people like Paul Glaze and, and Davisha and my wife and Otha Thornton. And I mean, I can mm-hmm. go on and on, but just really good people encouraged us and uh, and pushed us and um, in the end we didn't win but we we created something called the five georges plan and it was very well received it's extremely well received you know my takeaway from from all this which i think is to me interesting it's about the process and in some ways i'm going to tip people off to a dirty secret my mom's had this conversation with me yeah. she goes i've always thought you know the behind the scenes the politics just seems so Dirty. You know, if it seems bad on the surface, it must be really awful behind the scenes. Yeah. And then you find out behind the scenes, it's really worse than what you envisioned. Yeah. And what my takeaway, and and I, I want to make this very clear, I'm not even thinking of anybody specific at, at this time. It's just like a broad statement. It's like you see that people, like, I can say this for you. You don't have to say this. But we had lots of people that were supporting you but couldn't vote for you because of political reasons. Yeah. We heard that from a lot of people. That's beyond screwed up. If you're saying Daniel's the the best person for this, but because of whatever reason, we can't do that. Yeah. And that goes on a lot in politics. It does. But this election happened at at our state committee meeting. And I just want to say, like, to me, that's that's a... it's a very special type of honor in a way because as a state committee member, there's less than 400 of us. So there's there's like 300 basically your, your uh, county parties elect committee members to represent the party, your local party, to the state party. Mm-hmm. And you get to vote in these type of elections and so forth. Then you have a special list of people, people that have run for you know statewide office and whatever, and those people get to vote. So out of all the people that were there, we ended up having nearly... 40% of the people didn't vote. That's right. And you sit there and go... And it's not that they didn't vote. A lot of them in various parts of the state may not have had the means to make right. a five or six hour drive to the Capitol to be able to vote. Absolutely. So it's like there, there's 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 a couple avenues to go down. First of all, you sit there and go, you had people where our party didn't have resources. I would think the party should have resources in place. Like, hey, we should make it so if maybe it's not cost effective. If you if it's seven hours of drive or six hours of driving, the person's like, look, maybe I, absentee. Right. I can't vote. I, I don't have the money to pay for a hotel room. Yeah. You know, all those type of things. But but what I thought in the end was an absentee, right? Some type of you know digital or mail ballot, whatever. But at the end of the day, nearly forty percent of those select amount of people that have been given the honor out of nearly eleven million people in the state, say you know for simple math, half the state's Democrat. Whatever, you know what I mean? Say there are five million Democrats and stuff. It's like, what what is wrong with this picture? You know, why why don't people vote and stuff? And we're supposed to be the party who's all about voting rights yeah. and voter protection and stuff. So it's like you've got to go deep into it. I think so when we created the the the, the uh the platform, mm-hmm. the Bob George's plan, we created it with an intention to create a document 
that right. could be measured. A blueprint. A blueprint. And, uh, and, and you know, it's still up on dpg.vote. And we were very intentional about creating the story, but being the voice of folks that may not have been able to make it there. We knew what we were up against. Um, before I even get any further, congratulations to Nakima Williams, mm-hmm. um, you know, because she ran and she won, you yeah. know. Um, but we knew from the beginning that, that it was us against most of the Democratic establishment. Sure. Um, you know, she was not only endorsed or at least it seemed that way by the Atlanta General Constitution and, and by the, the outgoing chair and so many elected officials. We didn't make that an excuse. We just right. looked at it and we said, well, regardless of the endorsement, you know, or regardless of people's opinion, we wanted to just be able to put something out right. apples to oranges and, and give people an opportunity to choose. Mm-hmm. And they chose and, and, and it was not me that they chose. So that being said, I think one thing the Democratic Party of Georgia has to do, and the main takeaway I learned was that we have to do a better job of leveling the playing field. Uh, when you look at Fulton and the cabin, Gwinnett, you know, we saw almost uh, two thirds of the vote coming out of those areas, whereas counties outside right. of Metro Atlanta, they may have had a combined, you know, less than a third of the vote right. because, you know, while there may have been 35 or 45 votes coming out of Fulton, there may have only been four or five coming out of Forsyth, mm-hmm. right? So I think we need to rethink that model, look at our bylaws. Um, I, I wish Nakima success. Um, I will continue to work with Nakima and with other people to make sure that we can get to a mutually agreed upon destination. Um, but we've got to really be honest about the holes that exist within our party. And until we address those areas, you know, I'm not here to sugarcoat anything. We're going to continue to lose. So I had a conversation and, and this was interesting. And so I guess for our audience, I, I like when we can provide these things because it's like it kind of gives you behind the scenes of what's going on. So... Part of, part of the strategy with the Five Georges plan was essentially, and it's what people know, and people within the party know this, and the Republicans know this, and everybody knows it. The Democratic Party is focused on the inside the perimeter into hell with the rest of the state. Yeah. Now, that's the truth of the matter, you know, and, and people say that's not true. It is. If you look at how the strategy is laid out, it's ITP or bust. And we lose. We lose every time. Statewide, we lose every time. And this is something that, that doesn't go over well with people um, because I guess it's controversial, but, but it's being, being a truth teller. It's like, I feel that Democrats, they cheer, they cheer and they rah, rah. But at the end of the day, they're just the person who's the victor is a loser. We're picking the losers of the losers in some way. We have to have a strategic but, change. But, but explain that. You're saying we're picking the loser of the loser in what aspect? So I'm saying, let's say a person running for office is champion. And look, I'll go, I'll totally go, I'll go where apparently I'm not supposed to go. So I'm going to go down this road. Like Stacey Abrams is this, you know, transformative figure. She's, she has this huge identity, you know, nationally and stuff now. But at the end of the day, she didn't win. Yeah. And that's, that's the hard truth that our folks don't want to accept. And I know the counter argument is this. The counter argument is it's rigged against us that, you know, the truth of the matter is all the stuff that Brian Kemp did was completely scummy. It was dishonest. We know the intent was to suppress the vote, but it wasn't illegal. We have to keep going back to that because it wasn't illegal. Brian Kemp and company, they're there the next four years. Nothing is going to change. So the voter suppression model that basically is in place in Georgia, it's remains. It's not going to be any different. So I had a conversation with somebody who's high up in the party now, and 
this person, the feedback they had was it that they said that outside Atlanta, people were mad as hell. That, that's what they said to me. That there, there's this huge disconnect and that, that if you're not in Atlanta, the rural parts of the state, and like it was, we've talked about, where we, we are, we're kind of this weird hybrid. We're a metro suburb, but once you start going to the northern part of our county, it's, it's really rural and it's, you know, it's like everything north of here. But what this person said was, he, he and I did more he, but this person said, well, we're looking at, can we pull 50,000 more votes out of Metro Atlanta to get over the hump? Or do we need to look at 23 or 24 counties outside of Metro Atlanta to get 100,000 votes? And then, then to have enough to get to where we can win, okay? And if you look at the math, Stacey lost by 50,000. Other races are up to 100,000 votes or something. I said I believe that that's the wrong way to look at it. And I know that our plan, this whole Five Georgias plan, looked at it this way. I said you're making it an, uh, an either-or argument. I said you should be doing both. I said, I, agree. I said we need to be pulling those extra 50,000 people out of Metro Atlanta and then getting the 100,000 outside. And the, the follow-up to that yeah. is the Georgia Republican Party understands that. What well, they, they organized by precinct. Which, which and, I think is pretty damn smart. They've got a whole operation going on here very shortly. And I think, to be honest, man, you know, outside of, of Texas, which has 240 counties, Georgia has 159 counties. Mm-hmm. And until we start organizing at the county level and then the precinct level, like in Forsyth County, we're very proud that we flipped one or two of our precincts, right. um, you know, and, and, and got uh, Carolyn Bordeaux striking distance yes. of becoming the congresswoman to represent the 7th Congressional District. That being said, until we are serious about creating field operations plans and Mm -hmm. giving the tools needed, like voter training, education, organizing field operations, um, we've got to start engaging counties. Like if you look at what Cobb County was able to do, and shout out to Michael Owens, but if you look out at what they did with Lucy McBath and what they did with with Hillary winning in 2016, That, is, that has been a plan in place that they have created, right? Why not package up the Cobb plan and then take that right. over to, you know, Lumpkin, right? right? Now, granted, are there going to be differences? Of course. But we can take a plan that works, take those individuals, and go train and organize. And I right. think one thing the Democratic Party, especially in Georgia, doesn't do a good enough job of is look at what's working, right? And, and create these best practices Right. So that, for instance, in Atlanta, it's easy to organize when you've got three or four congressmen. Right. Right. In DeKalb, it's easy to organize when Hank Johnson is, you know, working on your behalf and Michael Thurman is doing stuff for the schools. And that's great. But what the hell do you do when you are a blue dot in a red ocean? Right. And you don't have DeKalb right next door to you. Or you don't have Fulton to the south of you. Mm-hmm. Or you don't have a Democrat in the whole county that or, or, or district is uh you don't have a one not one democratically elected person, right? So I think it, it all boils down to exactly what you said and the hope that we try to make with the plan, which is organizing a way that does three things. Number one, it brings into the fold your auxiliary organizations, your right. connected dots, your paved blues, your indivisibles, right. all these different groups that are mm-hmm. grassroots driven. Right. Athens for everyone, right? right. Like bringing in these groups. Mm-hmm. Once you do that, you now, instead of reinventing the wheel, because it's disingenuous for someone from the state party to go into Hall County and say, here's how y'all are going to be. That's right. just not going to work. Right. So organize the county, 
create a pipeline between the county and the state party. Right. Now the state party funnels the field operations plan. Mm-hmm. Now the state party funnels the resources. Right. Now the state party can funnel the speakers because I ha- I don't remember the last time we saw a national figurehead or a state party leader just consistently, not during a campaign or election season, just go all the way up to Reagan, right? right? Or go all the way down to Lyons, right? Or go all the way to Early County where they might only get seven or eight or 15 people. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is that we're going to build trust in an apparatus. We've got to do that. And then lastly, mm-hmm. then the third part is we have to do a better job of, of and, I, and again, this is all throughout our plan, of building the bench. Right. We need to stop focusing as Democrats on just building a bench with candidates. Right. We need campaign managers. Mm-hmm. We need field organizers. We need phone bankers. We need campaign managers. We need finance directors. We need people that understand politics. And we don't need to get these folks from New York and Pennsylvania and Washington and Ohio when you have the good enough, the good enough people that are here that understand the lay, landscape of the land. Or so, the, the lay of the land. Right. Okay, so so two things. Uh, hopefully I won't forget either. So the, the first thing is, I want to go back for one second to what the Republican plan is. They see where everything went south in 2018. Yep. What are they going to do for 2020? They said the only way for them to make a comeback will be to spend a lot of resources, which means money and, and on-the-ground operations, not in the rural part of the state. They already feel very confident about that because we're not there. There's nobody playing against them. We're not there. They're like, we're coming from Metro Atlanta. So when I heard that argument, like, well, we're going to pull 50,000 more votes out of Metro Atlanta. That'll be negated because the Republicans are going to be working damn hard to get votes again here. So then you're neutralized. If you're neutralized and we don't deal with the rural part of the state, guess what? They keep winning because we, we then haven't made any more progress because we're not going after rural vote. One, one quick thing, the second part was, uh, I was speaking to somebody running a campaign who said that because of the lack of people being trained on the ground here, they had to go out of state to, to bring in talent like campaign managers. And because basically things aren't run, run so wonderfully in the state as a whole, it's not, it has, has not been attractive for those people to come and run campaigns or be, you know, Feel you, know what, you know what it's like? It's it's the $9 billion movie industry and film industry comes to Georgia, yep. right? But even though we're a top three destination for films, we um, the post-production is done in New York, LA, right. and London, right? right? Why? Because we have not created a workforce development That's infrastructure right. mm-hmm. to support that industry. Yep. So now when we're starting to talk about the, 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 <laughs> the political side, the, the, the industry of politics, what we have done a... a, a poor job of is creating a workforce development infrastructure that can tell people you're coming out of college. Here's how you volunteer on John Ossoff or Lucy McBath or Carolyn Bordeaux's campaign. And hey, by the way, after you volunteer, we're going to create this this institute for you to be able to go to to hone in. Like, Why don't Democrats do post-election analysis, Right. right? Why not have the state party say, here's what we did extremely well. And here's where we got our asses kicked. Right. Right. Here's what we did. I mean, here's how many millennials we activated. Right. And here's how many we missed. Here's the amount of African Americans we increased in the vote. And here's the amount of Latinos and Asians and East Indians that we were able to vote. Right. But because there's no post-election analysis, because we don't we run the party like a social club and not a business, mm-hmm. we don't have measurables. 
If you go to any corporation right now, they're going to have what's called an annual report, right? Mm -hmm. We need annual reports and markers that are showing us where we are, how far we have to go, and what we can do. The best way I can put it is how a gentleman came to me two years ago, right before the election, mm -hmm. and he says to me, he says, Daniel, the problem with Democrats is we keep trying to hit home runs and not singles and doubles. Right. He said, we keep on going to get governors elected and secretaries of state and lieutenant governors. And then granted, are those important? Yeah. yeah. But so was the corner. Right. So was the school board. Mm -hmm. So was the county commission. Yeah. So was the dog catcher. And yeah. so are all these individuals that are that are passing these miscellaneous and oppressive BS, you know, laws in, in the courts. You know, we got a lot of judges that are being elected. Right. And these individuals are passing laws that are impacting the communities, especially black and brown communities mm -hmm. that are supposed to be in your wheelhouse and base of voters. Sure. So now you've neglected it. So when, when I say hitting these singles and doubles, let's focus on local elections. Shout out to Tim Dennison and Athens for mm -hmm. everyone and Mariah and Tommy and everybody out there that's doing stuff locally on the ground. You got me worked up, man. So uh, we got to get ready to shift though and, and get ready to, <laughs> Focus on the next show. We do. And so we're going to have a really great lineup coming up over the next many weeks. Just like we're saying at the beginning, yep. we're now going to get into a regular schedule. That's right. Welcome back. Yes. So um, what I'd like to say to all of our listeners is thank you for allowing Eric and I's first year um, having a podcast so successful. You've been our inspiration. We've learned a lot about ourselves. We've learned about a lot about you. And while we don't profess to be perfect, we hope that us being bluntly honest is uh, right. is what's needed. You know, we um, are not going to always say things you agree with, but we are truthfully just trying to be unapologetically who we are. And Eric and I don't always agree on everything, but we work together because we know we have the same intent and we fight for the same things because we know the kind of world we want to raise our children. We both, ironically, have three boys and yeah, So, uh, you know, man, uh, Eric, it's, it's been an honor. And I think 2019 is just going to it's gonna be just amazing for us and for our listeners. Yeah, I'm way excited. So I want to remind everybody, as always, follow us on our social media. One of the best things that you guys can do for us, let your friends and everybody know about us. Help us expand the audience. It's crucial to us because, to be honest with you, the bigger the audience gets, the more exciting guests and stuff we're going to bring on. That, that's the truth. So you can find us at Blue Topsy on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And as you guys probably know who follow us already, we're always putting up interesting stuff along with show content. So stay tuned. Hit us up on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, any one of our platforms. Let us know what you would like to hear. Mm -hmm. Submit your questions. If you have a um, you know, profound guest that you would like to submit, you know, you can find all that information online. I'm Daniel Blackman. I'm Eric Cohen. And this is Blue Topsy. We thank you all so much. Tune into our next show.